I'm Katie Zapanta. And I'm Christina Pullen. And we're here to introduce episode nine of our podcast, Tartans Watch the Watchmen. The title of our podcast comes from a question posed by the 1980s era Watchmen comic series, Who Will Watch the Watchmen? Our answer, Tartans will watch the Watchmen. The creator of the original Watchmen comic, Alan Moore, said that this question is part of the overarching theme of the Watchmen series, which is, what are the effects of power upon society? In this episode, we're looking at the power of legacy in HBO's Watchmen. How does Watchmen use the concept of legacy? What kinds of legacy does Watchmen draw on? And what will be Watchmen's legacy going forward? Our three presenters today are Elle Smith, Anna Tutain, and Nate Roblin. Elle is a freshman film and visual media major. She loves talking about TV, and she came into this class knowing a lot about Damon Lindelof's previous work. Anna is a sophomore dramaturgy major. She took this class because she loves Watchmen. Nate is a double major in material science engineering and biomedical engineering. He took this class to learn more about how films and TV shows are put together. This is a tricky episode because each of our presenters started out doing research on topics that seemed very different from each other. Professor Newman asked them to work together to tease out the ways they were each approaching legacy from a different point of view. Nate researched how HBO's Watchmen explored a new idea in genetic science, which is the idea that trauma can be passed down through epigenetics. Epigenetics is when changes in organisms are caused by modification of gene expression rather than alteration of the genetic code itself. Anna looked at the concept of legacy through the proliferation of egg symbolism in Watchmen. Eggs are everywhere in the series, from egg farmers we meet in episode four to the egg Angela separates during her baking demonstration in episode one, to the boiled eggs that Will Reeves eats in episode two etc, etc. No pun intended. Just kidding, it is. Anna also touches on the idea of Easter eggs. Easter egg is any hidden reference, clue, or inside joke that have been placed into a TV show, film, or video game. They're pretty much a creator's secret love letter to their fans. How romantic. Elle looked at legacy from the point of view of Watchmen's colorful showrunner, Damon Lindelof. Elle examines how frequent Lindelof themes such as God and fate play out in the character of Dr. Manhattan. Stay tuned for this interesting discussion of legacy in HBO's Watchmen. Hi, listeners. Welcome to our podcast episode on the legacy of Watchmen. I'm Nate Roble. I'm Anna Tutain. And I'm Elle Smith. So just to get us started off, why don't we go around and introduce ourselves and just talk uh, briefly about some of the research that we've been doing in this class uh, with relation to the show. Um, I'll start off first. Um, My research looked into the theme of intergenerational trauma uh, in the show and uh, how the nostalgia drug um, that was used within the show was actually a tool for showcasing intergenerational trauma Um, And I think also a potential way uh, to uh, break out of the cycle of passed on trauma um, for the characters in the show. Yeah, thanks, Nate. Um, 
again, my name is Anna. I, and I looked at the, um, legacy and Watchmen through the lens of eggs. So I specifically looked at episode four and cracked, uh, open the egg symbolism within that and found that Watchmen was using egg symbolism to examine different forms of legacy and to be a through line of legacy within the show. And I also found that they're kind of challenging our concept of legacy and what legacy means to you. It changes depending on your race, your status, your gender, and so forth. So that is the gist of my research. Thanks, Anna. That was excellent. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) Okay, so my research really focused on Damon Lindelof as the auteur of Watchmen. Um, and all the pomp and circumstance that really comes with that, the idea of looking at his body of work as a kind of repetition of themes and ideas, and also looking at his external influences on um, how he creates Watchmen. Particularly, I focused on kind of the concept of how religion fits into Watchmen, and Dr. Manhattan in particular. Is he supposed to be God? What does it mean if he's God? Does it even matter if Dr. Manhattan dies? That's an interesting question that you actually are bringing up. Like, does his death matter? Um, I like thought about that a lot and thinking about like his death. And as we see in the end, you know, does it matter because his superpowers are being transferred into someone else who gets who, what determines who gets those superpowers um, do you have any more thoughts about that, Elle? Well, yeah, I think that one of the big things about Dr. Manhattan is that he's the most milk toast human being to ever exist. If you can qualify him, um, a giant blue man who can breathe on Mars without any help, um, a human being. <laughs> um, and like, the fact that John Osterman as a person and Damon Lindelof talks about this a lot when he's on podcasts um, is a very boring human being. He's like the least, he's kind of like the most ideal person to have these powers by that kind of concept. Cause he's just not going to do anything with them. He's just going to literally create the most uncreative, uncreative, um, like little European hellscape. Utopia. (laughs) Utopia, yeah. Um, And kind of just acts as this figure of uselessness almost. He's meant to be there to do something, but he just never does. And I think there's a lot of questions relating to when Dr. Manhattan is killed, does it matter for the universe of Watchmen? And why really doesn't it matter? And I think a lot of that comes down to the fact that Dr. Manhattan is the person, only person in the world who want to have godlike powers because he's so bland, or at least that's what the show wants us to hear. Yeah. And in his creation of Dr. Manhattan, it was all very accidental, obviously. He just kind of happened to be there at the right time. Um, And he is, like you were saying, kind of very uncreative person. So thinking about what a singular person will do with these powers um, and thinking about the other characters that kind of hunt for those powers, thinking of Lady True, 
um, and imagining what might happen when she get those, what if she were to get those powers um, and what might happen post-show with Angela if the audience chooses to believe, I personally like to choose to believe that Angela inherited those powers after eating the egg that Dr. Manhattan left behind. So it's interesting to think about what one might do with those powers, because as we saw with John Osterman, he just kind of happened to be there. Yeah, yeah, no, and that's such an interesting point about um, really the characters who could have inherited the powers, um, specifically, I think, Lady True and Angela. Um, how do you guys feel about uh, Lady True um, being denied those powers um, in that last episode? It's not that cool. Um, <laughs> um, well, one of the things that's so odd about the show is the only thing we're supposed to take as indication that Lady True doesn't should doesn't deserve those powers is Adrian Bite going, "Oh no, she's the wrong person to have this," and that's just a strange way of justifying killing off a character is just some megalomaniac villain who's clearly a narcissist going no she doesn't get those powers it's just strange yeah using adrian as a moral compass to like sort of decide you know her final judgment is questionable to say the least um yeah yeah no i totally agree and I, I've been thinking a lot about Lady True and what would happen if she were to have those powers, right? Um, something that I was doing in my own personal research was looking at legacy, obviously, and superpowers. Um, they're kind of introducing to us like legacy meets superpowers, which is something we don't see often. And what that looks like, what it would have looked like if Lady True were to have um, inherited those powers. Um, because like you were saying, Elle, we don't really know what that might look like. Um, it's never fully realized. We just kind of have to trust that she would have used them in the wrong way. And I think us as audience members are kind of curious to see what she might have done. Um, maybe she wouldn't have used them in a completely selfish way, but was might have been more selfless with them um, if she were to inherit those powers. Yeah, it seems like a lot of that trust that they want us to have as audience members that she would have used the powers in a manipulative or self selfish way um, sort of comes from the way that the uh, showrunners and writers um, want us to feel about the character um, just in that last episode. I mean, um, just, uh, I mean, first off, yeah, just using Adrian as like the, the person to like um, sort of define what she would have done with the powers in that like uh, one sentence basically that he says in his Antarctic lair um, just to start off. But then also um, the show writers don't really seem to humanize her character all that much outside of um, just the you know, science-oriented traits that they um, portray a lot um, throughout the show with her character. Yeah, you're bringing up a good point, Nate. Um, 
And that leads me to ask the group, what do we think of the Asian representation as a whole in Watchmen? It's big yikes. Um, <laughs> I don't think it does Asian, um, it doesn't treat um, Asian representation nearly as strongly as it treats Black representation. Like if you look at the, the Asian characters that we see, you really only have Lady True's mother slash daughter and Lady True. There are of course people in Vietnam, but they're more stage setting in a lot of ways. Um, and so that means that the characters that we kind of understand as um, Asian within this world all fit into these kinds of stereotypes that are not that, you know, almost not that creative, not that aware of the stereotypes. And it's just kind of a, as I summed up before, big yikes. Um, you know, you don't, like Lady True is this woman in science. She's cold and she's kind of like a strange, you know, she's a strange person and she's not really portrayed sympathetically. They use all these um, Asian stereotypes literally of, you know, Asian people tend to be good at STEM. Yeah, thanks for that, Elle. I, what you're saying um, reminded me a lot of like what I was looking at in my research as well, um, specifically with episode four and just Lady True's obsession with legacy, um, I think is another harmful stereotype that is kind of being perpetuated here in the series. Um, at, looking at episode four, when she buys the land from that couple who own an egg farm um, so she can have her father there when he when his ship lands, Adrian's ship lands. And now she has her whole family there to witness her accomplishments, um, I think is getting into some murky areas in terms of stereotypes with um, Asian people, specifically Asian women and having Lady True's obsession with legacy was something I've been kind of working through um, as an audience member in, in my own research. Yeah, there's definitely a factor in the way that the show decides to treat Lady True in which they seem to be judging all of her actions as morally dubious or wrong inherently. Um, and a lot of her actions are, are very, you know, in the gray area. Of course, she does some interesting things, you know, kind of, you know, not that great um, by, you know, forcing that couple with the baby to, forcing the couple to sell their land with the baby and putting legacy on that kind of concept of it's just what you, just literally legacy is just, you know, your progenitor. Biological legacy. Yes, your biological yes. legacy. Um, and I think one of the problems is that you have to kind of question why is it that they say that um, Lady True is so worthy, is so, I mean, unworthy of having Dr. Manhattan's powers while um, Angela would be seen as a okay person to have it. She does just as much morally dubious stuff. She is complicit in wild police brutality. It's against white supremacists that we see 
but you know there's the underlying implication of you know her the police force that she works for is just effectively brutal in a lot of ways and it's and she also you know just makes decisions that sometimes are extremely extremely questionable in the context of you know what's morally right to do yet when we're asked to choose between lady true and angela the show decides that angela is somehow worthy at least in you know the implication that dr manhattan would give her that egg with his powers in it angela is worthy of the powers but lady true would use them for evil and she's not worthy and there's just a big question about why is that yeah i think the show sort of shoehorns lady true into this villainous role um by and sort of um excuses um questionable um actions by angela by sort of um fleshing out their backgrounds their backstories in different ways um i mean with angela uh and her grandfather who also has a lot of questionable actions i mean killing judd in the very first episode um he's not treated as a villain in the same way that Lady True is just because you sort of get to see the trauma that these characters have experienced. You get to see what makes them tick, why they act the way that they do. Um, and with Lady True, you just don't really get that to the same um, degree. Um, I mean, um, with Lady True's mother, um, there are sort of hints that she lived through the Vietnam conflict, which in its own way could have been just as traumatic um, of like a jumping off point um, as uh, the 1921 Tulsa massacre that the show uses as a jumping off point for Will and Angela's uh, passed on trauma. But the show just sort of chooses to sidestep that and not really um, explore that part of her um, background as a character, um, instead just sort of focusing on, you know, manipulative or morally gray, um, actions that can sort of put her into this role that they, um, wrote for her. (laughs) Yeah. It's not fully fleshed out or fully realized and, um, kind of ties into like how much of Angela DeRisi versus Lady True. Um, And one of the questions I think like we're circling on is like the show making a distinction between Lady True um, and Angela and their trauma. Um, And we don't really get to see Lady True's trauma, which is something I think I'd be curious to see. Yeah, the show really does use trauma as a way to create sympathy that doesn't exist really in any other, um, for a lot of other characters. And it's almost blindsided in a way of going, yes, we're going to talk about trauma that happens to Black people within America. And that's a completely fair thing. We're also going to talk about the trauma that comes from acts of domestic terror, well, is the Vietnam bombing of Angela's parents domestic terrorism? That's a whole nother question, but acts of domestic terrorism and Adrian Veidt's, you know, own trauma, they kind of 
not own trauma, the trauma he inflicts on the entire world after dropping a giant squid on Manhattan and killing 4 million people. So it's kind of pick and choose about what trauma it wants to use to justify a character's backgrounds and what trauma it just wants to ignore. And just there's a, such a strange kind of ignorance of every character's personal canon, their personal lived experiences that have made them who they are. And it just, it always, it makes a lot of Lady True's arc ring hollow because she doesn't really have an arc. She's just there as a mysterious figure who we don't know what she's doing. And then when we find out what she's doing, she's inherently evil. And yes, she is killing Dr. Manhattan, but the reason she's doing that is because she believes that she could do better. Of course, that's an inherently narcissistic thing to believe, but at the same time, it's also a inherently human thing to believe that you could do better than someone else. And I think that in, she, in the way that she chose to kill Dr. Manhattan, in utilizing everyone else's, like, you know, personal follies, using white supremacists, using, um, even using Angela to extent, um, and how that creates this kind of idea that um, Lady True is manipulative is kind of just leaves a bad taste in my mouth because when I look at what she did, she in a lot of ways is the most intelligent person to come out of Watchmen, far more intelligent than Adrian Veidt, but she's also doing it not for the same kinds of evil that Adrian Veidt is when he decides to drop the squid on, um, on Manhattan. He, she's choosing that, of course, well, she's choosing, of course, that she's going to try to save the world, which sounds so much like what Adrian says at the end of the original Watchmen comic. But in doing it, we have no reason to believe that she's, you know, inherently going to do evil things with it. Adrian's plan involved murder fundamentally at its core. It involves killing so many countless people. And Ladies Truths is just... Okay, I'll just vaporize some white supremacists in this giant blue man. You know, it's like, it's not nearly on the par that it's asking me, that the show is trying to put it on. And I feel like it's both racist and sexist that it tries to do that in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, and uh, this whole plan that she concocts for the last episode, she's been doing that with Will all along. And uh, while she gets, uh, a, you know, a death, you know, as her punishment, you know, a death that's treated as a punchline, no less, um, Will sort of just gets to live out, you know, the rest of his life with Angela. Um, and um, there's not that same kind of, you know, questioning of his morals um, or repercussions for him for his involvement that Lady True gets. Yeah. And I think the show places a lot of trust in its audience to kind of uh, see her as this villain. But I think there's been a lot of pushback as we're kind of pushing back now in this conversation. Um, and then thinking about how 
trauma informs characters and their decisions. I'm curious for the group, um, what is the legacy of the comic book within this show? Um, I think that one way that the comic book informs the uh, universe of the show is by um, using that uh, 11-2 squid attack um, as a jumping off point for some of its characterization. Um, we see Wade uh, or Looking Glass um, sort of has his origin, you know, for who he becomes later in life uh, as his trauma from this event. Um, and we see the, the repercussions of the um, squid attack uh, on everyday life for him. He has to wear the reflective team um, because otherwise he doesn't feel safe at any moment of his life. Um, it so deeply affected him. Um, and we also see there's this whole support group of other people, survivors or the um, next generation, um, you know, descendants of survivors um, who are still just trying to get past this um, traumatic experience that Adrian wrought on them. Um, and so I think the show um, sort of uses this event to show like, how did this affect real people? How did this affect, you know, the people that weren't at the Antarctic base, you know, watching this from TV screens? What did this do to people that actually lived through it? It plays with the concept of, you know, what the original comic was doing and saying, what about if superheroes were real? And it's looking at what about if people who were, you know, in the sidelines of these horrific superhero style conflicts, you know, were actually emotionally affected by it, were physically affected by it and the concepts of intergenerational trauma and were just, you know, completely unable to move on in a lot of ways. And I think one of the strongest things that the show does is likening it to a kind of 9-11 moment where just the whole world changes, you know, the whole everything shifts, how we kind of choose to understand our reality. And I think the, the um, show does such a good job playing with that in uh, like such a serious and genuine way. And I really do think that it really, the show really reveres the comic book in a lot of ways. It chooses that to kind of make the decision that comic, the comics are, you know, inherently a realism that, you know, you have to expand on in a lot of ways, kind of, but also it's a realism that you can expand on in a lot of ways. It's not like with a Marvel movie where, you know, in the first Avengers movie, there's that whole battle in whatever city they're in. Um, and there's like giant robot lizards tearing through skyscrapers. It's, and then you never really hear about it again. It's trying to really play up the realism of these real world kind of, ideas and I just think it's such an inherently strong narrative to tell within the show yeah no that's a great 
observation L and that like made me think of my own research. Um, so obviously like in my research, I was looking at like literal eggs, but I also kind of thought about like what eggs aren't on screen. And that led me to Easter eggs and looking at Easter eggs from the comic book um, and thinking about legacy of the Watchmen universe itself. And obviously the creators made the decision to set it in the future post comic book time period, um, a modern setting, which raised a lot of questions for me personally about like the responsibility within that role. Um, how do you continue the legacy of something without just recreating it, but also staying true to it um, and also saying something new. And that's what I think what Watchmen was trying to achieve. And I think does, I think um, the Watchmen creators achieved that balance well, in my opinion. Yeah, um, Damon Lindelof in basically every interview he's done, and I've read and heard a lot of them at this point, um, really talks about this kind of idea of remixing the original comics and kind of, you know, playing with, okay, it's not really a sequel because you don't need to have read the original comics for it to make sense, but also, you know, it's not not a sequel in the same way um, that I think is so strong in how it creates this kind of concept of um, legacy from one generation to another of both superheroes and of, you know, even the world that's built. You have Senator Keen, um, obviously, who's, you know, the son of the guy who passed the Keen Act um, in the comic books. You have um, nostalgia, the drug being related to a perfume that's kind of mentioned in the original comics. But also you have this undeniable idea of what structurally affects the storytelling as well. You have an episode, God Walks Into a Bar, that's very, very similar to the um, part of the graphic novel comic, the comic, um, where Dr. Manhattan's explaining how did he become Dr. Manhattan? And you have um, similar things within um, kind of that questions of why are we telling the story this way? It starts with a murder. It, it very much feels like it maintains a similar structure to the comics while still diverging in such a fresh and new way. And I think one of the most interesting things I found in my research was just the general idea that Damon Lindelof was a huge fan of the comics when he was, you know, a kid. And they're kind of a kind of foundational canon for him and kind of concepts of storytelling. And obviously you can see that throughout all of his work, you know, Lost has the um, flashbacks and side flashes and all that kind of stuff where it plays with time and how you kind of interpret stuff. But Watchmen is truly the, I think, purest form of these influences, as well as the purest form of kind of avoiding derivation at the same time in such, you know, unique ways. Yeah, and I think one of the most interesting things about the way that they do continue the comic book universe is actually with like the one thing that they do retcon in some way, which is the identity of Hooded Justice. Um, I actually think that him being a black man makes a lot more sense than the way that the comic book presents it. Because if you look at just the symbolism of his costume, uh, you know, 
he's literally wearing a noose around his neck and a bag over his head. Of course, you know, that wouldn't make sense if he was anything other than a black man in America. Um, Particularly in the 1930s and 40s. Yes, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, And I think that um, by sort of making Will um, put a justice, um, it sort of brings a new depth to a character that didn't really have all that much um, in the original comic. And it um, it creates a, a new story that can be continued on to the present day timeline um, with this whole um, passed on legacy of him as Hooded Justice and then his granddaughter, um, Angela, becoming uh, Sister Knight. Um, and then his um, also just his passed on trauma, which I know I keep talking about a lot, but <laughs> just one more time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, it just, it allows for some interesting and complex storytelling um, across generations um, that um, I think makes this change worthwhile. Um, as uh, a new element to this universe. I definitely agree. I think one of the things about, um, about you know, looking at Hooded Justice in the original comic um, is just, it doesn't make sense for it to be an executioner's hood. Why would a black, a white man in the 1930s just be running around an executioner's hood when it's very clearly a lynch in that kind of, you know, imagery is so so profoundly there um and i think that's just seriously one of the most interesting retcons but also the show doesn't retcon a lot of stuff um one of my favorite things is that they use ozymandias's original suit from the comic books and they put Jeremy Irons in it and it's so comedic but also so brilliant at conveying what Ozymandias is um, and kind of just how he views himself. Um, And if you're looking back at that original kind of group of heroes, uh, there's like the noticeable lack of Night Owl, um, which I think is very, very related to how how Laurie um, Blake is treated within the show too, where she's kind of, portrayed as just the forlorn ex-girlfriend of Dr. Manhattan in a lot of ways. And I don't know. It, I remember reading in some interviews where obviously Lindelof says that, oh, the treatment of um, Sally Jupiter within the, um, the original story is not that great. But the problem is, is that I don't think he treats um, either Lori Blake or the concept of Sally Jupiter and her story as a as with the same kind of hand that he puts to the concept of Hooded Justice or even Ozymandias. Um, she's very cartoonish in how she's kind of portrayed. She's literally the girlfriend who was jilted and now she's like very forlorn about it. And she's kind of fighting with the new girlfriend of her old, her um, ex. It's just, it's awkward in a lot of ways. 
Yeah. There's a lot to look at in their decisions to either keep what was used in the comic book or change that. Um, and as we're kind of like picking apart here, like how do you keep fans happy, original fans while also appealing to a new audience? How do you create something that makes you happy as a creator? Um, I think there's a lot to examine within that. But this is leading me to a question I will pose to the group. What is the actual legacy of Watchmen? It's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> For um, sure. But I'm just going to say briefly that when you were talking about the fact that not very many superhero stories have like fundamentally dealt with kind of the idea of legacy, I was just thinking it's just now that I think superhero stories are starting to grapple with that too. Um, Cause you have the Falcon and the winter soldier, or it might be reversed where it's like grappling with the identity of captain America. Um, and that kind of idea of what does it mean to pass on the torch? Of course, obviously, you know, superhero comics have been doing it, but it's, it's really new to the kind of, filmed superhero genre what it's doing and I think it's definitely being seen as influencing what's going on currently in the superhero genre. I think that um, one of the things that this show does so well is that it really centers the themes that it cares about um, in its story. Um, It doesn't make them subservient to the plot. They are the plot Um, like intergenerational trauma, complex morality, These are things that sort of define the storytelling arc of the show throughout its entire run. Um, And uh, it doesn't really shy away from them. Like, yes, there might be some things that we, you know, think they could have done better here or, you know, that we criticize, you know, um, but there's also a lot that they get right. Um, Like, just for example, like intergenerational trauma isn't something that's discussed much. Um, just generally it's not something that's very widely known about Um, and by sort of bringing attention to that subject um, that alone is a tremendous accomplishment of this show Um, and it does the same thing with the uh, 1921 Tulsa massacre another um, event that people don't really know all that much about um, but by using sort of a real life event as a starting point for the show, as opposed to a fictional one. Um, It informs a lot of people about a real thing that happened in America um, that we're still grappling with the after effects of to this day. Yeah, no, totally. Um, I love all the points you brought up, Nate. And I think why I was like really intrigued to ask this question um, because, you know, we've been poking at like the literal legacy within the show, what the creators had intentioned within the universe of the Watchmen series. Um, But I think there's also something interesting in kind of zooming out and analyzing our own brains instead and what we kind of, um, think and imagine when we talk about Watchmen. Um, And 
not only that, analyzing our brains, but kind of analyzing the relationship Watchmen has to the grander film scholarly world as well. Um, what other people think of the show, what's it's kind of, you know, what are the conversations that are being brought up when we talk about Watchmen? And I think that's really interesting to look at. Um, like Nate, what you were saying, um, there's so much about intergenerational trauma. There's so much um, about race, race in America, and what are these central themes, how they're central to the plot. And you can really tell that they were first and foremost in the writer's room. They weren't an afterthought. We don't really have to dig for them when we watch the show. It's something that's in your face and you can't ignore it when watching the series or talking about it in any way. And I think that's what kind of makes it worth studying it and looking at it. Um, these blending stories of historical narrative with fictional narrative and sci-fi and reimagining a universe um, with reparations and reimagining what, you know, L, what you were talking about, if superheroes were real and how realism would come into this if, you know, there were giant squid attacks, um, there would be so much more to be dealt with. And I think that's kind of getting at the heart of the show and why we're analyzing it in the first place. Yeah, there's definitely such a distinct element to the show that puts it so it can be so easily analyzed where it's not able to be pinned down as you're saying in its like most broad term the show is a kind of speculative fiction of what's going to happen in the future but also what's going to happen in the past or what happened if you know something else happened um it's still like such an odd show to kind of think about in terms of genre because of course yeah it's a superhero show but is it really a superhero show is it really a drama fully? Is it a family drama? It doesn't fit into that. It's not necessarily a comedy either. It just, it's amorphous, but it's also so many things at once. It's looking at kind of the concept of Afrofuturism in a non-futuristic way. It's looking at the African diaspora, African-American diaspora. It's looking at kind of a, um, the, the impacts of colonialism in what it does do in reflecting on the concepts of, you know, Vietnam becoming a state in the US. And it's so fascinating in how it chooses to be all these different things, but also be none of these things at the same time. It's kind of the Dr. Manhattan of television. <laughs> I'm sorry. Great way to bring it full circle. No, that was incredible. <laughs> this episode has me thinking. Our podcast is almost over. Christina, you're graduating from CMU this spring and even in like a week. What are some of your thoughts about legacy? Don't remind me. I'm afraid of graduating and being a real adult. But as for your question, legacy to me means having an impact to do good in the world. I hope my legacy means making someone else's life better. How about you, Katie? What are you thinking about your legacy? When I think of legacy, I think about the very simple phrase I learned in my 
Boy Scout slash Girl Scout days because I would always tag along to my brother's Boy Scout trips. And they always told us to try to leave the place better than we found it. So I think that's overall my thoughts, not just at Carnegie Mellon, but how I approach my place in this world. Everyone stay tuned for our final episode, which is a how we made it discussion with more than half of the students in our Watchmen class. To get new episodes, you can find us here on Anchor as well as Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, you can always check out our class website at lps.library.cmu.edu slash WP slash Watchmen. And to all of our listeners, thanks for being here today. We'll see you next time on Tartan's Watch the Watchmen. (laughs) 